Uh, it's a self-isolation and social distancing. And uh, it's, a, it's a challenge because this virus changes everything. I was sent this item by a friend of ours. It appeared in the Camrose newspaper. It's a reflections from self-quarantine. Day five. I'm so excited. It's time to take out the garbage. I wonder what I should wear. Day seven. I don't think we expected that when we changed the clocks, we'd go from standard time to the twilight zone. Day eight. My house has a city appraisal of 345,000. After getting toilet papered last night, my real estate agent thinks it could bring in 550,000. Day nine. Have we tried unplugging 2020, waiting 10 minutes and plugging it back in again? Day 10. Ladies, it's time to start dating older dudes. They can get you into the grocery store early. Day 12. I still haven't decided where to go for Easter, either the bedroom or the living room. Day 13. My mom always told me I wouldn't amount to anything just lying around on the sofa. And yet here I am, saving the world. How do you like me now? Well, I think we can identify with some of that. Today we are going to uh, be looking at a number of passages in the New Testament and uh, focusing on Palm Sunday. And this message message is entitled, The History of Horses. It's a weird title, but uh, once I'm finished, you'll understand how it applies. And so today is Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus of Nazareth entered Jerusalem in a trium triumphal procession riding on an unbroken colt. It was prophetically symbolic of the Messiah coming to claim his rightful place as the King of the Jews and ultimately as the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Luke chapter 19, verse 36, we read, As he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this event that took place 2,000 years ago when you came to the city that you loved, that you had so much to offer them, and yet you were facing rejection and crucifixion. Lord, we know that uh, you could have turned away 
You could have uh, avoided this. But you had come for this purpose. And so help us to understand more of your heart as we take this ride with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for most of his public ministry, Jesus was a pedestrian. He did a lot of walking. He didn't have a Fitbit, but his daily average must have been a lot more than 10,000 steps. Jesus wasn't much of a camel rider. He did sometimes travel by boat. Otherwise, it was all about walking, except on Palm Sunday. In verse 28 of Luke 19, we read, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. For this trip, Jesus took an Uber, an unbroken colt. Now, this could have been a wild ride. Welcome to the Jerusalem Stampede. Out of shoot number one from Galilee in the novice category, we have a Nazarene in the bareback bucking event. Remember, you only have to stay on for eight seconds. Well, this ride was not very dramatic. Matthew's Gospel tells us that the colt's mother was brought along. So it was a nice, smooth ride, even when the colt was overwhelmed by the crowds that were shouting and chanting around them. It says, The whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. And so Jesus is riding toward Jerusalem on a colt. And as I said, it was very symbolic. In fact, there are numerous times when horses are mentioned in the Bible. And they seem to appear at crucial turning points in history. Which may mean that heaven, to some extent, is an an equestrian society. It's ranching country, like Alberta without the tar sands and without the oilers. Do I hear an amen? No, not too many flame fans here today. Actually, I love Edmonton, lived there for 25 years. I'm just not much of a hockey fan. And so this morning, I'd like to look at three passages that mention horses in the New Testament. And these three equine events give us a summary of human history. So here we have the first, the the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, riding on an unbroken colt, and the response is deafening. If you've ever been in the Middle East among one of their holy days, it is amazing. The enthusiasm, the singing, celebrating, and the decibel level keeps rising. These were definitely not Baptists. But of course, Baptists have significantly improved in this area over the years. This is even above the range of the Seattle Seahawks fans. For three years, the momentum of Christ's ministry has been building to this climactic crescendo. The disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Lawrence Richards writes this. 
Look for a moment at the disciples, shouting for joy, thrilled by all that they had seen him do. And put forever out of your mind the dismal image of discipleship as a drab and dreary existence or as mere endurance in the desperate hope of something better later on. Realize that discipleship leads to joy. For as we live close to Jesus, we will know the joy that comes from all that we see him do. It's like the old country preacher who said, following Jesus isn't just pie in the sky, by and by when we die. We can start slicing now. So here we have the disciples joyfully praising God in loud voices. The prophet Zechariah had predicted this event in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king is coming, and this triumphal entrance was not just filled with joyful emotions, This could have been the turning point of history, for Jesus could now change everything. Just think of the possibilities. Jesus could offer these people a perfect love that drives out all fear, peace that transcends understanding. He could give them forgiveness and freedom from guilt, for the truth sets us free. He could offer a hope that does not disappoint How about every good and perfect gift and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms? For in Jesus, all the promises of God were yes. From this day forward, these people could do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with their God. Because Jesus did not come to punish them. He came unarmed, offering his love, his amazing grace, offering to make all things new. What an opportunity this was, if only they would believe and receive him. But there was another spirit at work. Verse 39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is too much. We should have you all arrested for disorderly conduct. If this keeps going, we're going to have a riot on our hands. When you read the Gospels, you realize that religion is simply not the answer. Jesus had more problems with sincere religious people than with anyone else. And we're talking about right-wing religious people. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet... The stones will cry out. That's interesting. You know, there are a lot of highly intelligent people with impressive IQs who reject and despise Jesus. Well, guess what? They are dumber than a rock. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. 
Verse 44, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What an opportunity this was for Jerusalem, for the world. But we missed it. And by the end of the week, the cries of blessed and Hosanna had mutated and metastasized into crucify him, crucify him. How is this possible? How could we be so foolish? Well, the Bible clearly explains why this happened. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We all know John 3.16, where God's offer of love and forgiveness and salvation through Christ is made available to whosoever believes. And we can choose to accept that. So have you made your decision? What's your verdict? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This attitude was well articulated by a poet named Sarah Teasdale, who said, I would not have a God come in to shield me suddenly from sin, or angels with bright burning wings ordering my thoughts and things. Rather be lost than let my soul slip vaguely from my own control. We don't want Jesus because we don't want to give up control. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Nobody is going to tell me what to do, not even God. This is the verdict. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so the rest is history. If you look at the 2,000 years we've had since then, you see that we still love darkness. The verdict stands. Now, of course, in that time, we've gotten some things right. We have vaccines and anesthetics and respirators. We've come up with indoor plumbing and bicycles. There's football. There's digital photography. There's Disney Plus. There's yoga and frues. We found ways to whiten our teeth and get rid of dandruff. And we're even capable of great heroism and sacrifice, like in the first responders and doctors and nurses that are treating the coronavirus. We've gotten some things right. There are a thousand points of light, but the darkness still dominates. Violence and wars continue. There's racial prejudice and genocide, slavery and sex trafficking, Obscene economic inequality. There's bullying. There's poaching. There are drug cartels and street gangs. There's pornography and child abuse. There's toxic waste and escalating profanity. There are mass shootings and religious atrocities. And there's a lot more where that came from. And it could have been so different. But we preferred darkness to light. Because we have to be in control. Nobody tells us what to do. The un <clears throat> unfortunate thing is that it's actually an illusion. 
we're not really in control because 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, we know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Behind it all, there's a supernatural power at work. And that's really the only explanation for people like Hitler and John Coney and Paul Pot and Osama bin Laden and Judas Iscariot. Because if you've got any inclination or aptitude towards evil, Satan will tutor you and sponsor you and enable you to go much further than is humanly possible. Of course, for the rest of us, he just maintains a consumer level of unrighteousness. Because we are decent people. We're not bad sinners. We're good sinners. But we're good sinners who are capable of some bad things, even ugly things. Because there's things going on inside of us that uh, really are not very good. As Helmetilicus says, even when we're singing hymns, there can be wolves howling in the cellars of our soul. It's interesting that when they interview the neighbors of some of the serial killers, you hear them say, well, he was such a nice guy, very friendly, a good neighbor. But of course, that's not us. We're good sinners. We wait for our turn at a four-way stop. We shovel our sidewalks in the winter. We read our children bedtime stories. But we also know there's something terribly wrong, that this world is broken. Suicide bombers, school shootings, domestic violence. I guess it's all just part of the price we pay to live in a world that wants absolutely nothing to do with God. Eugene Peterson writes, the world's alternative to salvation is optimism, generous applications of goodwill to the slag heaps of injustice. Even in the darkness, we remain optimistic. And this delusion could go on forever, except that there's some horses that are getting restless and eager to run. And they get their opportunity in the book of Revelation. So to keep up, we're going to have to mount up because we've got ground to cover. Some time ago, we studied chapter 5 of Revelation, where we find the title deed to planet Earth written on a scroll that was secured by seven seals. Opening this document would bring human history to an end and usher in a new and glorious age without evil and without darkness. All that was needed was someone with the right credentials to break the seals and open the scroll. And he would have to be human because God gave mankind the authority to reign on this earth. So the search began for someone worthy to meet this criteria. But the search failed. No one was found because no one was worthy. Not one. Not one of all the good sinners was worthy. Not Gandhi or Muhammad. Not Mandela or Martin Luther King. Not Michelle Obama or Oprah. No one was worthy. Which meant that the powers of darkness could continue their reign of terror indefinitely and the world would remain under the control of the evil one. 
The Apostle John, who saw this search fail, wrote this in chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 4. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open a scroll or look inside. The search had failed. But then heaven stood still because that's when the Lamb appeared, a Lamb that was slain. Verse 7 says, He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He took the scroll because he was worthy. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So the one who entered Jerusalem in triumph on Palm Sunday and then rose triumphantly from the grave one week later on Easter Sunday, he is the only one worthy, and he will reign forever. And so as he begins to open the seals, we hear the sound of thundering hooves. In chapter 6, we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse galloping across the landscape of a fallen world, unleashing the full consequence of human sin. It is now time for judgment to begin. And the way I look at it, God doesn't have to strike our world with massive meteors because a microscopic virus is all it takes to bring us to our knees. In fact, often divine judgment does not even consist of anything exotic or extraterrestrial. It doesn't have any foreign elements. It's simply the release of the consequences that are already contained within the very sins we commit. For example, Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 says, The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. There's no need for divine intervention because it's all natural cause and effect. For example, sexual immorality, which according to the Bible is sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. All of this premarital sex is a sin and there are consequences. 1 Corinthians 6, 8 says this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Theology is not even necessary. It's just biology. You see, we were not created to sin. It's toxic. And the punishment that I deserve is already pre-programmed into the sin I choose to commit. It is only by God's grace that I can escape the consequences. So the four horsemen simply represents a time when God stops protecting us from ourselves. Let me say that again. The four horsemen represent a time when God stops protecting us from ourselves and lets the consequences of our sin run their full course. 
And so this plague, coronavirus, is merely an example of what that would look like. In Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 7, it says, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Maybe this is the time when the uh, terrorists will unleash their bioweapons. And I'm sure that the World Health Organization will fail to recognize any divine element in these disasters. They will look at them simply as a human problem that they will attempt to solve using human means like research and military checkpoints. But those are just temporary measures. The only real hope is that people will come to their senses and repent. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen, and things keep getting worse. So what this is, is merely an acceleration of events. Normally, the cause and effect consequences of sin happen so gradually, we don't even notice the connection. But the four horsemen accelerate the process. God pushes the fast-forward button and history increases its momentum until it's a full gallop to the finish. It's fast and furious, just like this pandemic. And throughout these last days, darkness will continue to increase. Life will become deadlier and more decadent, and people will become more defiant of God. And then the Antichrist will appear, and he will impress everyone as he solves the world's problems. And he even makes the trains run on time. But once he has the power he needs, he'll unveil his master plan to annihilate the Jews. It's the Holocaust 2.0. It's now the Great Tribulation, and all hell breaks loose. But as these traumatic events run their course, another horse appears. In Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Verse 14 says, The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. So here comes the cavalry to the rescue. And guess who's leading the charge? Guess who's coming to save us? The same one who rode in triumph into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The one who offered salvation and forgiveness. The one who offered a perfect love that could cast out fear. But we did not recognize the time of God's coming. We not only missed the greatest opportunity in history, we committed the greatest atrocity of all time. We crucified him. But even as he was dying, he cried, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What amazing grace. What unquenchable love. And now he's coming back. 
coming back to a world that despised and rejected him, a world that has ridiculed and persecuted his followers. He's coming back, so maybe it's not too late. One thing's for sure, we can't make the same mistake again. This time it'll be different. We've learned our lesson. We realize we can't save ourselves. He is our only hope. We surrender to you. This time, it'll be different, for he will make all things new. What? Surrender? Never! That's out of the question. Battle stations, battle stations, invasion incoming. Unfortunately, nothing has changed. The world that demanded his crucifixion 2,000 years ago will double down on that rejection. And there will be an infinity war. You see, one of these days, it will be too late. Because amazing grace is a limited time offer. God's forgiveness has an expiry date. So hurry while supplies last. Here he comes. And it says his eyes are like blazing fire. Those eyes have witnessed all the sins that have been rehearsed and performed before sold-out crowds and standing ovations. All the sins that were done in secret and those that have been defiantly paraded through our streets. No wonder his eyes are blazing like fire. As William Blake put it, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, in what distant, deeper skies burnt the fire of thine eyes. His eyes are like blazing fire. The last time he rode in, he was unarmed. But this time, he has a weapon of mass destruction. It says in verse 15, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. By his word, God created the heavens and the earth. And by his word, they will be destroyed to make way for something better. Wow, when you look at this, you realize there's no way I would want to be on the wrong side of that rider and his army. Verse 16 says, On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we have a spoiler alert. Verse 19 says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. It says the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. That is judgment day. Nobody was expecting that. I can't believe it. Who could have predicted this? They told us it's all good. They said, don't worry, be happy. God is a softy. He's harmless. You can spit in his face and he'll just turn the other cheek. He may be disappointed with us, but what can he do about it? As the Japanese say, shogunai. 
as it was in the days of Noah. Judgment is going to catch everyone by surprise and Jesus will return when we least expect it. And this imagery of the lake of burning sulfur and the soldiers slain on the battlefield, these are depictions of the aftermath of the final judgment, which are all absorbed into a four-letter word like a black hole, the most dreaded word in our language, hell. You see, in spite of John Lennon's cosmology, hell exists because of the Sarah Teasdale option. God respects our right to privacy. We have the right to live without any interference by those angels with bright burning wings. And hell is simply our right to privacy extended eternally to people like Miss Teasdale and all her Facebook friends and all the followers she has on Twitter and Instagram. That's where they can enter a realm that is off limits to God. There will be no trespassing and they'll be rid of him once and for all, forever and ever. The only downside is that when God withdraws his presence, all of his goodness and mercy disappear. So far in this life, God has made his sun rise on the evil and the good. He has sent rain to both the righteous and the unrighteous. But in the next life, those who prefer darkness, for them, the forecast will never change. Because when God withdraws his presence, his blessings also disappear. So there will be no more joy, no peace, no love, no forgiveness, no comfort, no creativity, no stimulating conversations over coffee, no afternoons on the beach, no Saturdays in the park, no Super Bowl tickets. There will be no wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. There will be no photography, no Wi-Fi, no cures, and no hope. And you know, that could have been my fate. Because I spent many years in rebellion, angry at God, blaming him for all that was wrong with the world. I love darkness. Hello darkness, my old friend. I see myself in that defined generation. That's me right there, shaking my fist on the second row, third from the left. But I deserted the ranks because I discovered that God refused to stop loving me. Instead of retribution, he offered me a place of refuge. I got asylum, but not just with landed immigrant status. You won't believe this, but I was given the right to become his son with an inheritance that can never spoil or perish or fade. As it says in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And that's me. And I hope that's true for all of you. Because it's not too late. The shelves aren't empty. We still have an opportunity. All we have to do is ask, Lord Jesus, 
I surrender. Forgive me and take control of my life and make all things new. That is our best option, one with eternal consequences. Because when it comes to horses, it all depends which side you're on. While the rebellious see the rider on the white horse as a threat, as their worst nightmare, the redeemed see him as our only hope. We welcome him, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We have nothing to fear from the rider on the white horse. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, we look forward to the next triumphal entry, when the one who humbled himself will be exalted to the highest place, and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we do look forward to the next triumphal entry. We look forward to that because that's the only hope this world has. We just pray that many of those who are lost now will come to their senses, know their need of salvation, know that optimism is not enough. They need to be saved. And there is a way of salvation, only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So we pray this in the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ. Amen.